Good morning, church. I'm Kevin. Nice to meet you all. You're like, Pastor Steve got shorter, and I, I thought he was more handsome, but then, like, this whole thing happened, and now we've got this guy, and... Did you know that you are all my brothers and sisters? Some of you older, some of you younger. Did you know that God loves each and every one of you? Without condition, without pretense, without quid pro quo. And so before we dig into anything else this morning, sermons sometimes get a bad rap for being more like Jonathan Edwards back in the day with the sinners in the hands of an angry God, with a warning that, I don't know if you know this, but did you know your soul was dangling over the pits of hell? That's not the kind of sermon I'm going to be preaching this morning. We're going to start and end with love. Love of God for us, love of us for one another, love of us for God, love of God for our neighbors. And so as we read through this passage here, we got Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4 that Pastor Ray read for us. It was a passage worth reading, and I think it's a a very relevant one. But since this is my first time getting to speak to you all, and it's my first time speaking to a church in person since God knows when, I don't. I kind of found myself thinking like, okay, so what is my goal here? Why am I preaching? Why am I speaking to each of you on a Sunday morning? Why do you give me, according to the schedule, 25 minutes? I hear it used to be 20, and it's often whatever time it is. Why do you give me your attention for this amount of time every Sunday morning? What kingdom work can we do in the next 20 or so minutes together, or however many minutes it ends up being, that would be bringing glory to God and bringing us closer to his spirit and his likeness? Because that's the question, right? So I find myself asking, like, what's going on in Kevin's head anyway? Why are we listening to this guy who's sitting up front? And my theology of sermons and my theology of scripture and my theology of why we do church together instead of sitting in a quiet room someplace and praying and reading scripture by ourselves is that it is a thing best done in community. It is a thing best done with somebody next to you to check your work. So I'm reminded of the way that Paul would preach all over, you know, Europe and Asia. He did a lot of missionary journeys, and there's this one group of people called the Bereans. And he loved them because he would go and he'd sit in the synagogue and he would preach and he would pontificate and he'd say lots of fancy things because he's Paul and he loves his run-on sentences, whether they're written or spoken. And the Bereans would go, well, that's a nice thought. I'm going to go read my Bible, and I'm going to fact check everything you said. And if it stands the test, then maybe I'll be back tomorrow, and you can teach me a little bit more. I love the Bereans. I hope we have a lot of Bereans sitting in the sanctuary this morning. I want this to be done in community. I want you to fact check with this book or one like it. And I want you to do your own study so that we can come back together and each one of us together can share what the Holy Spirit has said and thought and taught and prayed with us 
so that we can all be edified together and be made more like Christ. So there's this fancy word, and I've got this nice little handy-dandy chart on how to pronounce it. The word is hermeneutics, okay? So if you ever forget how to pronounce the word hermeneutics, we have Hermann Munster, we have a female sheep, also called a ewe, and we have ticks, although not really, it, you're, you're safe. So hermeneutics, it's this idea that whatever you read, whatever you think, whatever you do, whatever time you experience a written text, or every time you, you see a sermon even, hermeneutics is what you do when you take what the author wrote down on the paper and you translate it and you understand it and you chew it and you, you get it in a form that you can actually fit inside your head and incorporate into your life, okay? Whether you know it or not, you have been an expert on hermeneutics every day of your life. When you read the newspaper, you take the written text, you take what the journalist has said, and you interpret it, and you go, oh, that's what happened. Now I understand. And so now when we read scripture together, what we do is we take this book, we read this book, we perform a hermeneutics together and separately, and then now we understand just a little bit better who God is and who God wants us to be. So see, there's a trick with hermeneutics, though. Everyone does it. No two people do it the same. So there's a, there's a story, though, about these, these three people who, who couldn't see. And so they're, they're walking through, and they, they, they stumble across this obstacle, and they don't, they don't really know what this obstacle is. They, they have no idea. And so they're like, okay, well, we'll send the, the first person. We'll call them James. James goes up and James starts trying to feel and figure out what this thing is and it's big and it's round and he tries to put his arms around it and he can't. And he's like, it's rough, it's scratchy, this must be a tree. So he walks back and goes, guys, there's a tree, we can just walk around it, it's fine. Second person says, I don't know, I don't trust you, let's check this out. So we'll call her Sarah. She walks up front and she heads to a slightly different spot and she's like, oh my goodness, this is, somehow this is a big snake. This isn't a tree at all. This is dangerous. We have to go a different way. So the third guy, we'll call him Matt. Matt says, well, I don't trust either of you because we, we don't have anything to agree on. It's not a tree and a snake. It has to be one or the other. Let me check this out. So he walks straight into the side of it, and he hits this big, massive thing, and he can't get around it. He's like, guys, it's, it's not that either. I don't know what this is. Well, it turns out it, it was an elephant right? So you're walking through and you, you grab the leg and it feels like a tree. You grab the trunk and it feels like a snake and you walk into the side of it and it just hits you in the face and you're like, I don't know what this is, but it's big and I can't get around it. This is us studying God. This is the blind leading the blind. And each one of us, as we encounter God, we will encounter God in different ways. For some of us, if we are in need of stability in our lives, we will encounter a God who is stable and rooted and like a tree. If we need someone to lead us through a tough spot and we need something that's just a little bit crafty, maybe God's just that wise serpent, not the one from the garden. We don't like that one. But like a crafty serpent who's like, here is the way forward. Let me show you the way. And sometimes, if we're getting a little headstrong and we're not actually listening to God at all, maybe we just walk smack into the side of it and God is an obstacle. <laughs> what I believe is that there's no possible way that any one of us can fit 
the fullness of God inside our skulls. God is bigger than we are. That shouldn't come as a surprise. I hope this is obvious to you. But God is bigger than we are. Deep thoughts with Kevin on Sunday morning, I know. So you've got this idea that if God is truly bigger than we are, and we can't possibly understand the fullness that God is, this is another reason why we do this together. This is why we gather, because my experience with God last week is going to be different from yours. That's not bad. That's not something to fight against. It's something to learn from together. And so we gather, and so we do church together. And so when you talk about my hermeneutic, personally, the way I read scripture, right? Everybody has kind of their own style. Some people, you know, they grab their Beth Moore Bible study and they fill in the blanks and they're, they're good to go. If you grab your bulletin, you'll notice there are no blanks to fill. That's not my style. That's not my hermeneutic, right? I'm more of a conversational fireside chat. Let's see what God has for me today kind of guy, right? Look at the story. What is going on? What was the author thinking when they wrote the book of Daniel? You know, you read the first bit, and you're like, okay, cool, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown in the fire furnace, God saves them, sweet. Daniel, thrown in the lion's den, got saved, sweet. I love where this is going. And then you get about six chapters in. <laughs> you ever read the rest of Daniel? Burning wheels and eyes on angels, and it, it gets weird real quick, right? <laughs> you're not going to do a fill-in-the-blank Bible study. How many eyes were on the third angel in Je It's just not how you do it, right? At least it's not how I do it. And so when I read things that seem out of place like that, or when I bump up against something that doesn't seem to make sense, and I can't seem to fit it into my conception of where I thought God was and where he was taking me, I have to pay attention to the bigger story. Right? Because God is doing more than just what's being done in my life. He's working in your life and the life of my neighbor and friends and people across the world. There's a bigger story here, and there's that bigger story in Scripture as well. And so I, I believe that Scripture is this cohesive whole made up of many sort of fragmented parts. You got the weird 50-eyed angels right alongside John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, there's some weird stuff in there. But it's a cohesive whole told in many parts, and every single one of those parts lead back to Christ. Every one of them. And if I don't see how something leads back to Christ, the fault is not scripture, the fault is mine. And so I got some learning to do. Maybe one of you can teach me. And so we work together. So there's this guy, his name is, is Boyd, and he wrote this book called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, which is this big, huge book. Unless you're a very dedicated person, I don't recommend picking it up at the library and trying to read it in a weekend. It's not a beach reading kind of book, right? His whole thesis for this entire book is that every single passage of scripture needs to be read in harmony with the idea that God incarnate came to earth so that he could die, that you and I might live. If at any point you read a passage of scripture, or you read a Bible story, or you read about a 50-eyed angel with eyes on the inside of its wings, right? If any point you read something like that and you go, huh, I bet I should keep this to myself and I shouldn't help my neighbor, you've read it wrong. 
because everything in scripture needs to be read in light of the self-sacrificing love that comes through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And so there are your guardrails, right? If you were worried that I was getting a little too loosey-goosey with my hermeneutic, and you're like, well, I don't know, Pastor Kevin says anyone's reading is worth listening to, well, there are your guardrails, right? If at any point someone says, hey, I think we should do this, and it hurts someone, the answer is no. It's not, that's not what the Bible says. You need to go read it again. I'll pray for you. We'll, we'll meet back in 20 minutes or something like that, or two days, or however long it takes you, but you need to read that again because you haven't done your homework. It's not what Jesus would do. And that's what we're called to do. And so we come all the way back. We come back to this passage that we read this morning. And I believe from this passage that God has special love for a sneaky giver. Right? I I believe that when we give, God loves it when we're sneaky about it. And I don't think it's so much that God loves when we're sneaky. I think it's the sacrifice that is required for us to do something for someone else and then not tell anyone about it, right? Because if I want to do something really nice for Melanie, you know, like, and I got away with it for a while, but then she put it on Facebook and she ruined it. So, you know, like it was, it was Valentine's Day or some, some holiday and, you know, I went out and I laid out all the candles and stuff and we had them all lit when she got home and, and then she came home and like, you know, it was just a nice, a nice thing I had done. Now I've kind of ruined it because I've told all of you about it. Melanie posted it on Facebook, and so now I've received my reward in full, right? But see, if I had done all those things so that Melanie put it on Facebook, or if I had put it on Facebook myself and been like, guys, I am a great husband. Like, I don't mean to brag, but you know what? Like, you've all seen those people, though, right? You, you've all had that... <laughs> You know, that had that experience where somebody is, like, just clearly doing it for, for the glory. And you clearly shouldn't. And so here, here's the, the issue. We, we think that things that are good should be done in secret because the people that do them so that they can be public have ignored the true message of Scripture. They've ignored the message that love should be self-sacrificing. They've missed the message that self-sacrifice is Christ-like. And instead, they've decided, well, I'm going to do really good things and get rewarded for it. And I've got this kind of commodities exchange of holiness set up. And you and I both probably remember what Jesus himself did when somebody set up a commodities exchange in the temple. Just remember, whenever someone asked, well, what would Jesus do? Making a whip of cords and snapping it at people and overturning tables and money is within the realm of possibility. Because some things should be opposed. Some self-serving, selfish, others-harming things should be opposed, and that would be holiness. And so, I, to, to put this in context of a larger story, because I, I kind of gave you like the, the framework of what I think sermons should do, I gave you the idea of a hermeneutic and how do we read scripture and how do we fit weird stuff into passages so that they make sense. And here's how I understand the larger story of scripture. I think it's a tale of two cities. I think that we have a story that is 
interspersed and interlaced throughout all of scripture where we have a tale of two stories. We have Babylon versus Jerusalem. We have the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of this world. We have a, a love of God and of neighbor versus a love of self. We have the old story of the Israelites and Egypt. We have the God of the Israelites and the God of the Egyptians, and we have the 10 plagues. And we have this conflict that is laced throughout all of scripture, and we go every single time God wins, but look how he does it. What sorts of things does God fight for? What sorts of things do we expect out of a kingdom that is based on heavenly principles? What do we expect righteousness to look like when you and I gather every Sunday morning and continually ask ourselves the question, just what is it that God expects me to do in love and compassion this week? And how sneakily can I do it so that the glory remains his? And see, this conflict between this heaven and earthly kingdoms, these, these conflicts are embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. We have that story that we, we, we read in, in Matthew, right? Back a couple chapters where Jesus was tempted. And the devil chose to tempt him with making some bread. Now, now explain to me again, why, why is it evil that Christ would make some bread and eat it. I love bread. <laughs> I eat bread all the time. Are you telling me that this is putting my soul in a moral day? No, of course not. But what it represents is the idea that the purpose of Christ, the purpose he went out into the desert was not for his health. The purpose he went in the desert was to be self-emptying. And the devil was not offering just a piece of bread. The devil was offering, why don't you give up on all the self-effacing, difficult things that you're doing for the good of other people? I mean, surely, if you say all the right things and you teach all the right things and you heal the people, why make it harder? Why fast? Why not take care of yourself, too? And so we have this conflict that is not between murder and healing. The conflict is between taking care of my own needs first or living out that self-sacrificing, Christ-like love that led the God of the universe to allow himself to be attached to a crossbeam of wood and left there to die so that you and I might live. There's conflict. So if we... <laughs> If we believe that this battle is happening, we believe that we have these two cities, these two kingdoms, these two empires that are continually at war, and that battleground is, is visualized for us. It's embodied in what Jesus Christ first did to show us the way and to make it possible for us to follow in his footsteps. We can be holy, we can be righteous because he first was holy and he first was righteous. And then he offers to each of us, just like I said at the beginning here, did you know you're all my brothers and sisters? Did you all know that adoption into that holiness and that righteousness is a free gift? So long as you're willing to die.
And so the battleground, where this battle is actually fought, the battle is finished and won already in Jesus Christ, but the battle somehow is also still being fought in my heart and in yours every single day. Every single moment we have a choice, right? We have a choice. I can either help my neighbor or I can take care of my own needs first and give them whatever's left over. Every day I can look around and try to see other people as God sees them or I can see them as obstacles between me and what I want. It's a tale of two cities. It's a tale of two kingdoms. It's a tale of two empires. And those are at war within you. If that seems intimidating, that's why we started with the good news. The war has been won. Christ has defeated death itself, let alone your selfishness. If you're willing to die, Christ's victory can be manifest in your life as well. And so if we look at this, you know, we, we talk about God seeing what is done in secret and then rewarding you. We talk about the guys who, you know, literally are like, hey, I'm about to drop a five in the offering plate. Can I have a trumpet fanfare, please? Or, hey, you know, like, I don't know what else you, you personally might have done for the church lately, but I'm pretty sure you didn't ask for the trumpet fanfare on the way in. You know, what is that fanfare for the common man with the quiet trumpet? Like, you know, like nobody, nobody actually asks for that, but Jesus is talking about that, right? He says, you know, you all know the kind of guy who does that. You know, all the, you all know the woman who does that. They can't do anything to help anyone at work without making sure they send out a blast email and go, hey, guys, it's all right. I got the project done for you. You're welcome. Don't be like them, Jesus says. When you give, when you help, when you assist, when the victory of Christ wins in your heart and you're able to love your neighbor as God asked you to, be sneaky about it. And your Father in heaven will see what you do in secret and you will be rewarded. It's just not going to come with a pat on the back and a blast email and maybe a party thrown in your honor. The reward is going to be longer, more tangible, and more pure than that. It's not going to be a reward of demanding anything. It's going to be a reward of righteousness. I don't know if you've ever can think back right now to a time that you've been able to do that. Where you've been able to truly let your desires die and you were able to serve someone. But if you can think of that time, I'm not going to call you up front and ask you to share on the microphone what that was, because, again, not the point. But I bet you can also think about what the reward was from God for having been a selfless giver in secret. And so as we, we fight this battle every day, we fight the battle between demanding the accolades or secretly doing what is righteous 
and being like Christ. As we fight this battle every day, we have to understand the kingdom of God is about a place where people care for one another and give help freely without expecting recognition or reward. Can you imagine a room full of people who do that? Can you imagine a city full of people who do that or a country full of people who do that? This is the gospel. Death is defeated. Christ's victory is complete. And the battle that wages in your heart each and every day between your own selfish desires and the righteousness that God offers has already been won if only you're willing to die for it. So as the worship team comes, I do have a benediction for us as kind of a prayer. You guys can do it right now. I'm not subtle. <laughs> as we finish this, as, and as we look forward to yet another week where we have that battle to win and fight, here's my prayer for us. And so as we leave this place, we pray that we are given a godly wisdom that shows us the way. We pray that we will live a Christ-like life in service to God's kingdom. That we will be driven by love for our neighbors. That we will find joy in our love for God. And we pray that we will be found citizens of a kingdom that is built for the benefit of all God's creation. Amen.